I just thought it'd be wise to record a quick introduction to this episode because I do realise it's been quite a while since we put anything out and that has been due in part because Joachim has been very busy with studies which I'm pleased to report uh, have now come to end and I myself have been um, really busy on a project and some personal matters and the the episode you're going to hear today was actually recorded um, some months ago it's between myself and Mike White from the Projection Booth podcast and we had a great conversation about Pickup on South Street and I had every intention of um, filling the episode with clips and music and interviews from Sam Fuller and all that kind of thing and what happened basically fairly quickly after this um, episode came out was I became very very busy um, with a, a piece of work that I was doing for a client that just has just gone on and on and on and I'm recording today on December the 28th and it has finally come to an end today and the other issue that I had was that my uh, girlfriend lives in Ireland and we normally alternate visitations. I normally go over there, she comes over here, and it just hasn't been possible for her to come over here for quite a while, so I've been having to kind of go over there a lot more. And basically what kind of happened was I just didn't have really much time, or I suppose the the spare time I did have, I just simply wanted to relax, and it has just been a bit of a blur the past few weeks. So I do apologise, it's really down to me that the fact there haven't been many episodes out and of course I've managed to sort of neglect the other podcasts as well but hopefully that's all behind us now. Um, Jochen and I did record another episode which I'm going to have to put up in a few days and we're scheduled to record a best of episode very soon as well. So for the time being then I'm going to give you a conversation that I had with Mike White from the Projection Booth. This episode does end rather abruptly for some reason um, the, the audio my end went a bit crazy at the end so it kind of ends with Mike kind of signing off and then silence but um, yeah one of those little kind of technical glitches so without any further ado this is a look at Pick Up on South Street. From the bright lights of Broadway, through the subway undergrounds, to the gutters of South Street, they followed this woman. The bee girl who became a sitting duck to track down her man with a caress, a kiss, and a promise. As the whole underworld joins in a scorching counterblast against the spy menace in Pick Up on South Street. My name's Tom Jennings, this is the Masters of Cinema cast. Unfortunately, Joachim can't be with us today. He is uh, house hunting, I believe, and appears to work more hours in a day than I work in a week. So he was a little bit um, kind of tied up in things. But I have got a guest on today, which is Mike White from The Projection Booth. Mike, many thanks for coming on board with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, we're going to be talking about Sam Fuller's film, Pick Up on South Street, but I thought before we kind of get into that, it's always nice to have kind of other podcasters on uh, on the show. And I thought we'd just kind of start things off really by kind of talking about you and the the, the Projection Booth podcast and kind of your kind of thoughts on film. So it just kind of takes back, what was the kind of the inspiration for starting the Projection Booth? Well, I was actually listening to other podcasts and going, boy, I really don't like this, that, or the other thing about them. And if I started a podcast, I would not do those things. And so it was born of hate, basically. <laughs> the best place for things yes. to be uh, nurtured. It's the, the, the cold, dark parts of your heart. 
It's a strange one, really, because I, I, I sometimes get asked by people what podcasts I do and don't listen to. And, and I never really kind of like to kind of vocally criticise other people's podcasts. I think my view on it is very much if there's podcasts that I listen to and there's podcasts that I don't listen to. And if I've listened to something and I don't listen to it, and it normally because, like you said, there was something about it. I mean, wh- where do you kind of stand on criticising podcasts or do, do you kind of feel like the need to be kind of vocal about it? Or are you one of those who just kind of like very much sort of just says, right, OK, I just won't I won't listen as it were that that's pretty much it i just won't listen if i if i get annoyed by something i'll just tend to tune out i mean there are so many great podcasts out there that why waste your time on bad ones so there's always new ones to listen to ones that you've never had a chance to check out before so yeah just uh i i don't tend to criticize and plus i know I'm in a glass house. My podcast isn't the best in the world, so why would I be criticizing other people's? So, and it's really about taste. You know, some people might like this style, other people might like that. So, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong for liking a particular show. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I completely agree. I, I I mean, I've seen I've seen and read. Obviously, kind of I've, I've just been reading an article actually about online trolling and this kind of thing. And I think I see enough on kind of Facebook groups and discussions forums with people who have axes to grind in relation to other people's podcast and I find it especially disappointing when you have kind of people who do their own podcast and then feel the need to be so vocally vitriolic about other people's because I think at the end of the day it's just like people doing it for the love of doing it there's no I mean if there is some sort of financial reward please let me know um and I, and I, I will gladly go down the route but it, it's people doing it for the love of doing it and the love of film and I've always yeah, I, I think it's a bit, kind of bit. It's one of those where I kind of bit mean. It's slightly different if it's kind of like a corporate sponsored one. If it's like Warner Brothers or something like, that. I could probably be moved to perhaps kind of be a slightly more vocal. But it's definitely a, a community where I think from from what I've discovered over the years, it seems to be a lot more positive. I find the kind of the interactions that we have. Well, I don't know about yourself, but the interactions I've had with listeners, I've, I've always found to be very, very positive. I very rarely kind of receive any kind of negative feedback. And when I do, I think it's kind of people have taken exception to one particular thing that's been said. I mean, do you, I mean, do you find you get a lot of feedback from listeners? Not a whole lot. And when I do, it's generally positive. Every once in a while, I'll get uh, kind of a loony person mm-hmm. who will write. Like uh, we did one on, uh, James Randi and uh, a guy wrote and he has this whole uh, crazy conspiracy theory about uh, numerology and the Bible and codes and all this kind of stuff. And he just like kept leaving all these comments on the um, on the blog. And after a while, I was just like, you know, there's a reason why I moderate these comments. <laughs> yes. So you're not going to have any more comments on here because it was just insane. So yeah. but for the most part, it's been very, very positive stuff, which is nice. The The only real criticism that I get is like, oh, hey, you know, you didn't mention this, that, or the other thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I understand. You know, there's so many hours uh, that I record. No, definitely. I mean, what was the kind of, what what podcast did you listen to originally that kind of made you think that you would like to do your own? Well, I I love a lot of the NPR podcasts. I really, like, I strive to be as good as something like a radio lab. Like, if I could have that kind of sonic uh, landscape that they do. I've never gotten anywhere close to that, but I would just, that's like the, my goal is to have something as good as them. And then as far as movie podcasts, I really like outside the cinema. Uh, those guys are having a lot of fun, having a great discussion. So I wanted to have the, the kind of production and, and style of an NPR podcast with the fun of something like outside the cinema. Yeah, no, totally. It's just another one. It's the investment of time, though, isn't it? I mean, that's the other one I've tried recently to, to kind of up the kind of production kind of end of things. And 
sometimes you're like sort of I don't know like you're spending hours on a podcast like putting clips in and all this kind of stuff and uh, it's one of those where I need to kind of clear the decks occasionally today I've made it very much a kind of a podcasting day as it were where I've kind of banned myself from leaving the house and kind of get that I mean I don't know if you ever used to listen to the, the Hollywood Saloon podcast which was kind of where I became interested in podcasting from I mean that was like feature length shows I mean the the, the work that went into those was absolutely insane but the kind of the I suppose the end result is, w- was there to hear but have you ever kind of thought about kind of going into the kind of the video blogging that kind of thing or is it still going to just be kind of spoken word for you guys no I've got a real face for radio so I tend <laughs> to stay away from any kind of cameras uh, and then as far as like using you know uh, video footage or any of that stuff it's just like okay the right stuff just drives me crazy so yeah, I'll stay away from there. I uh, know I've actually had an email from some uh, for a piece of music I used once from I think it was Warner Brothers or something like that, and it was the politest, well-written threat I've ever received in my life. It was pantwettingly scary, and uh, and and had me uh, yeah remove said file immediately. But um, actually, kind of getting onto what, what what's your kind of like kind of your life in film, as it were? I mean, is it something that you've always been interested in, or is it something which kind of grew over time? No, I think it was always there. I mean, I remember going to the show with my mom um, very early on, seeing things like, you know, Fantasia or Murder by Death, these kind of things. And once I saw Star Wars, it was all over. I was just completely dedicated to that film for so many years until uh, Jedi came out. So that was a good solid six years of just watching that movie diving into any kind of sci-fi that I possibly could. And then, yeah, when I got to college, I went into film and uh, never looked back. And it's not like my day job is film-related. I'm you know, working on the internet, those kind of things. But my life outside of my 40-hour job has always just been very uh, filmic. No, totally. And, I mean, because you, you, t- you took part in the documentary, didn't you? Um, the People versus George Lucas. Yeah. Did you contact them or was it a case of they got in contact with you to kind of be on it? And what was what, what was your kind of what's your kind of thoughts on the whole kind of film in the intervening years, especially now we've had kind of The Force Awakens come out? I contacted them and I was just like, hey, you really need to talk to me about this, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't normally do. I'm not usually that forceful about stuff, but I was like, yeah, I, I've got a lot of strong opinions about this. And uh, they were like, OK, sure. Send us along a tape. So I was surprised that they even used anything that I sent. So I was, I was very happy about that. And then, yeah, in the intervening years, I mean, I, I'm still mad about the prequels. I don't, you know, sing the George Lucas Rape My Childhood song, any of that kind of stuff. In fact, there's actually a, a kind of a counter documentary being uh, put out pretty soon about people who love the prequels. So I'm oh, very curious to see that. Yeah, it, it'll be uh, I think it'll make a good uh, double feature there between the two of them. <laughs> It's a strange one because I, in the lead up last year to The Force Awakens, I went back and watched them all in chronological order. Of, and it was painful going back to those first, the first two films. I think um, Sith was vaguely passable, but those first two films, I hadn't seen them in years. And I, it, it was, I, I remember buying the Star Wars Blu-ray box set and I went back and it was I wouldn't say traumatic would be slightly overly dramatic but it just annoys it and I always sit mate this, I've seen the Phantom Menace more times than I've seen Raging Bull and it just really sickens me to the core that I've allowed that disparity over time to kind of happen but there's something about it 
watching those films again where they, they don't get any better any time but for some reason there's a I think there's a certain kind of sick entertainment that I get out of watching them do you have a similar type of thing or is it I just stay right away from them I really? mean I, I don't even really watch Jedi anymore I just watch uh, <laughs> New Hope and Empire Strikes Back and then it kind of just ends for me I'm like and that was the last chapter of the Star Wars universe though I did like Force Awakens I've seen it maybe twice now i mean it's not something i'm rushing out to see again i'm curious about rogue one those kind of things but you know the the magic of my childhood is is uh is over but i i have to say that those those two movies really still stand up i think they're very very well made and that's the thing with the prequels is they just feel very sloppy and they don't it feels like there's just gaping plot holes in there and just not a lot of motivation for characters. And sometimes I feel like we're not even looking at the right characters. You know, I think it would have been more interesting had it been the Obi-Wan Kenobi story than the Anakin Skywalker story. It says a lot about you, Mike, that your your Star Wars now ends on Empire Strikes Back with Luke having his arm cut off. It's a pretty miserable film, isn't it, really, when you think about it. It's a bit of a downer. And I, I, find, it, I find it interesting. Our psychologist is Joachim, actually, and he, I'm sure he'd have a lot to say on someone who, who, ends, the, who ends the saga there. But um, no, yeah, The Force Awakens, it was actually on Sky yesterday, and I watched it um, for a bit again. And uh, I was kind of like, I really liked it at the cinema. And the second time I saw it on IMAX, I was like, yeah, it's okay. Saw it again yesterday. And I was kind of bored with it. I, I don't think it. I don't think it's going to hold up that well to repeat viewings. And the fact that you can't escape—that it is—it's almost beat for beat for a New Hope in terms of the, the plot and set pieces and whatnot. And I, I kind of felt that it was kind of trying to placate everyone really by sort of saying they weren't going to try and do anything new other than give you the Star Wars film that you enjoyed before and. I hope to God they kind of stretch their wings a little bit with the, the next the next couple of films and try and really kind of push it in a new direction. But yeah, I am looking forward to Rogue One. But um, overall, I mean, what's your kind of like thought on, on, on film this year? I mean, have you been to the cinema much? Has there been anything that's kind of stood out for you? Um, the only thing that has been tolerable for me, the only thing that I'll want to watch a second time is the uh, latest Star Trek movie. Um, that's just mostly because it felt like a, a good episode. It didn't really even feel like a movie that much. But there's just been so many disappointing things as far as the mainstream cinema and as far as the independent cinema. I'm still waiting for a lot of it. I mean, I really want to see Swiss Army Man. There's a few other things that I really want to check out. But, you know, the big blockbusters have just left me cold all year. I mean, I, I tolerated um, Civil War. I'll, I'm curious to go back and see that one again. But, you know, God, stuff like Suicide Squad and Batman versus Superman have just been, oh, I, I really had a hard time with those. Yeah, I, I think this year has been a really poor year for film. And as you said, I think even kind of the art house scene whatever even art house means anymore I'm, I'm not entirely sure but even kind of yeah more independent films i found to be really disappointing i'm yet to see anything which i've really kind of has blown me away um it's, it's i mean there's films like son of soul which i um, we didn't say didn't enjoy son of soul i don't think you can enjoy a film like that but I, I kind of even that that seemed to be the kind of the critical darling release of the year which i i, I didn't think was particularly great and like you say i think Batman versus Superman. I don't know whether or not, to, to me, it was almost in, in, inexplicable, that film. 
um, I, I really was struggling to keep up with what was going on. And I think partly down to the fact I was so bored with that film. And I mean, it just seems ridiculous that you can have a film with Batman and Superman in it and be that bored. I don't honestly understand how you can, well, obviously you can because they have, but um, conceptually, I, I don't know. I thought it was a complete mess. I think the best things that are coming out lately are documentaries. I yes. mean, the, the some of the best things for me this year have been, and I can't remember if the um, uh, Death of Superman was this year or last year, but that was fantastic. The Doomed documentary about the never-released Fantastic Four film, that was great. And there's one called Tickled from New Zealand that just blew me away, and that's one I can't stop thinking about. And what's Tickled about? I've not actually heard it. So. Tickled is about a man uh, from New Zealand, a reporter who looks into the world of competitive tickling, which is a <laughs> thing, believe it or not. <laughs> and he tries to look into it and he gets shut down by this person who allegedly runs this thing and you know starts getting called all of these horrible, horrible names. And he's just like, well, this is interesting. They start to look into it, he and his, and his mate, who's the director of the film or co-director, and they just start to uncover this absolutely bizarre world. I don't want to say too much about it because it really goes down the rabbit hole with this film and leaves – it left me kind of like panting, just like, oh my god, I can't believe how strange and how, how deep this goes. No, that sounds amazing. I, I've, like I said, I've not, I've not even heard anything about that. So definitely, uh, you know, I'll be looking at that one. I mean, there's been. I mean, I, I think probably my, my favorite from the year has been Victoria. I'm not sure if you've have you seen that. It's a German film. No, I haven't um, seen that. Really interesting. It takes place. Um, it's all in one take, and it's about two and a half hours. And it's about a girl who leaves a nightclub and then ends up um, becoming involved in a bank robbery. A really kind of interesting film because I'm not, I'm not sure how much the kind of the concept of it um, and the kind of the technical execution of it overshadowed what was, I suppose, in many respects, quite a weak story. But interesting film, well worth kind of checking out. It's, it's out on Blu-ray here now um, for, for people living in England. So definitely kind of do check it out. But um, we're going to be talking today about um, Sam Fuller's pick up on South Street. But I thought before we kind of get into the film, it'd be quite interesting to talk about kind of Sam Fuller in general, really, because as we kind of discussed, he's a fairly fascinating person. By virtue of the fact he's a film director, I'm instantly interested in it anyway. But this person, his life is actually quite incredible, isn't it? When you kind of look through what he's been through. Well, yeah, the, he had several careers before he ever got into Hollywood. I mean, if, if you want to consider the military career, he definitely had a career in newspapers. And just he, he seems like a walking contradiction a lot of times because he's this really kind of terse, blustery guy. But then he has really, really progressive political views. And it's just amazing that, you know, that those two things go together. Like you would think he would be like, I don't know, uh, you know, just just very right wing or something. But he's just like, nope, I know exactly what I want. And I want to do this and that and the other thing. I mean, he's, he's casting, you know, Asian Americans, he's casting uh, African Americans, all of these people in these movies when it just wasn't done. And he's giving people like major roles and stuff. And it's just like, Whoa, wh- wh- where's this coming from? He, he, but he's, like I said, he's super progressive. It was just amazing that he would do that. And his films all feel very personal to me. Yes, and I, I wanted to kind of pick up on this this idea of kind of personality in films because um, in preparation for this, I ordered Sam Fuller's uh, biography, A Third Face, and it's called My Tale of Writing, Fighting, and Filmmaking. 
and it's brilliant. I've only read a few chapters so far, especially about the ones we're going to be watching today. But it's full of anecdotes. I'm flicking through it now, and there's pictures of him covering stories about the Ku Klux Klan, um, the Great Depression, um, fighting in the desert in World War Two, and all and all these types of things. And it became. I, I was watching a film last year called The Selfish Giant, which was a British film which took place in Northern England in an apparently working class area and it was a, a truly terrible film um on, on many many levels firstly the fact that its depiction of people in working class areas i thought was borderline offensive um and i kind of googled i looked into the person that made its history and they were I suppose kind of like as middle class as you could possibly hope to be they had kind of a very kind of, there didn't seem to be anything particularly um, extraordinary about their life. There didn't seem to be anything that would indicate that they would actually know what a working class area of Northern England would be like. And I've become increasingly aware of a lot of filmmakers now who, when I watch their films, I don't see any personality or, or I see auteurish traits like stylistic choices, which I think you kind of kind of can put down. Like, you know, if you're watching a Michael Mann film, for example, but when I look at the, the people making these films and I've, definitely put myself into this category. They're actually quite boring people. I would con- I would contest I'm quite a boring person. I have an average job. It is, I suppose, vaguely interesting to some people, but I have, you know, uh, a normal house. I don't, I haven't really kind of experienced anything like history. I haven't, I haven't been there when history's unfolded before my eyes. I've not seen anything completely life-changing, obviously kind of 9-11, I suppose, but I wasn't there, I didn't witness it. And Sam Fuller's one of these people. He seems to have witnessed history and lived it and lived amongst a massive variety of different people and he puts that into his films and going back and when we were preparing for this episode I was watching some of his films it's all there and in a way it was quite refreshing to see someone put that much of themselves into it there seems to be a lack of this kind of personality in films yeah I mean I, I can see certain filmmakers exploring the same themes repeatedly but it, it really doesn't it would be tough to put some filmmakers together or some of their films together and be able to tell, oh, well, that's this person's, that's this person's. There's not necessarily that strong of a mark on uh, a lot of folks's. And, and, you know, of course, I'm immediately thinking of the ones where you can see that mark, you know, oh, well, well Paul Thomas Anderson or, yeah. or Wes Anderson or any of the other Andersons, you can really see the the similarities between their works. But then there's a lot of just kind of standard action directors, standard drama directors, where you're just like, okay, this could be anybody. And, you know, you don't necessarily, other than maybe a, a, a use of a particular actor or actress uh, many times over their career, you don't necessarily see that much of a, a similarity between their films or, or even see that much of a, a working out of, of themes or ideas. I mean, it's kind of good about someone like J.J. Abrahams. I mean, he's, I, he's seen, he makes perfectly watchable films they, they look great i mean i i'm not a massive fan of, of his body but but you, you can't imagine like jj abraham is going to go and make a film about that when he was 18 when he got a job working on a fish fishing boat out in the north atlantic you know it doesn't seem to be that i, I don't see this kind of the personal in films and when i was watching some of these sam fuller ones i mean the, my entry into his works was the big red one when I first saw it, I, I was kind of raised on watching massive epic war films like The Longest Day and Patton and A Bridge Too Far and things like that. And I watched The Big Red One and I remember really liking the film, but I think it was kind of slightly hampered by its 
lack of budget, which I know is obviously not his fault, um, but you could certainly tell that there was a, a it had quite a small budget. But going back and reading some of the stuff I've been uh, looking at in his biography and thinking about that film again, there's there's parts of that film that are literally he experienced them directly, basically. It's interesting to, and I'm looking forward to kind of going through this biography a lot more, but you can suddenly tell how personal that film is. And just his views on war, like you were sort of saying about the fact that there, he isn't particularly jingoistic. He isn't this kind, he's not a John Milius type of a person by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he he talks about rather disparagingly in his books about John Wayne, sorry, in, in the biography about John Wayne war movies in which um, people saying, you know, these men have given their lives to their country. And he actually says in the Bible, he says, that's bullshit. They didn't give their lives. Their lives were taken away. They were robbed. And I think that's very telling that that would be his take on it because it's obviously someone who hasn't been to war. He doesn't see the glory in it. He, I think, experiences the horror and violence in his films, I think, always has consequences, which we'll get to. But, I mean, what was your kind of first take with Sam Fuller? Where did he kind of arrive at your film life? I think the first one I ever saw from him was Shock Corridor. And that just... God, it just blew me away. So many amazing actors in that. And just the, I mean, the the African-American guy who thinks that he's a white supremacist. Mm. I mean, years before Dave Chappelle, right? But, yeah. but it was just amazing. <laughs> like those kind of things, uh, just... It, just the insanity of it and the idea of the uh, the man who basically gives everything, you know, he's very much like a, a Nellie Bly kind of thing going undercover and trying to find this stuff out. Again, hitting on Sam's uh, journalistic background and uh, just to see his descent into madness in this madhouse and just how nor- normalized insanity can be as the movie goes on. It, yeah, it blew me away when I saw it. And then after that, it was just like, okay, now I have to see more of this guy's stuff. Yeah. I mean, what any kind of particulars, I mean, that really have stood out for you? I'm a huge fan of Run of the Arrow, uh, which is just this bizarre um, uh, Western that he made with Rod Steiger. I love Rod Steiger, especially when Rod Steiger's doing accents. Yeah. And in that one, he's doing a Southern Irishman. And then he, uh, it's, this is going to sound very familiar. It's at the end of the Civil War, and he moves out west and gets in with these Indian folks and just lives life with them. It's a much simpler life for him. He finally finds his place, and then the cavalry kind of comes west and uh, really screws everything up. So it's basically Dances with Wolves all these years before Dances with Wolves came out. And, oh my God, you want to see uh, Charles Bronson as one of the Indian chiefs. That's just amazing. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Annoyingly enough, I was trying to well, I was trying to get hold of as many of his films as I possibly could in the lead up to this. And Run of the Arrow, I think I, the only thing I saw was a DVD. And it was ridiculously priced. Yeah, that finally came out on that Warner uh, Burn On Demand uh, program that they have. And uh, yeah, for years and years, it was just impossible to find a decent version of it. And I'm not exactly sure why, but I I love it. I think it's terrific. And I love it kind of for the camp reasons, but also because it is just very well made and there are a lot of great themes in there and it is, you know, it's a Sam Fuller film. They're, they're, it's uh, put together really well and you can really, you know, he's saying stuff with it. 
No, definitely. I mean, even in the description, I mean, it goes against the normal pal of the Western. So, uh, well, to, to a revisionist Western in you know in nineteen fifty seven. I mean, yeah, I'm so annoyed. I mean, I, I, I think that the cheapest I saw it for in Britain was like eighty pounds, and it looked like it was some bloody knockoff from Spain or something like that. It looked pretty terrible, anyway. Basically, and I, yeah, I, I will, I will look out for it. It's a shame that um, it's not on streaming sites or something like that. It, but never mind. But um, no, I mean, I, I, I kind of discovered, I mean, the Big Red One, but I mean, I, when I was doing my um, getting into Criterion films, one of the, some of the very early releases were Shot Corridor and uh, The Naked Kiss. And yeah, I was really, I was really taken with those um, films. And I remember seeing um, Shot Corridor quite late at night as well when I watched it. And it's a really unsettling film. Like a lot of his films are, I find. that I sometimes find them quite hard going, actually. Um, not in, in the fact that obviously they're kind of technically poor and anything like that, but they just they kind of deal with themes which I think are quite hard to watch, and that was definitely one of them. Um, but I, I mean, another real standout for me was um, have you seen the the Eclipse box set that Criterion brought out with? I shot Jesse James, the Baron of Arizona, and still Helmet. I watched um, I shot Jesse James actually on Friday, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that film as well. Um, it, it's it kind of demystifies the West and really shows how the act of killing can really ruin someone uh, i've seen so many westerns where people are just getting shot and you, you lose you lose count of who's dying and who's not dying it all seems to be quite sanitized in a way and with i shot jesse james you really get the impression that th this is a killing that has meant something have you seen any of those films uh, I have seen the Steel Helmet, yes. uh, but I haven't seen the others of that set. No, it's a it's a definitely well worth checking out. Um, really interesting, especially I, I had seen the, the assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford uh, quite recently again, and I sort of felt that I shot Jesse James does everything that film does in an hour and twenty minutes. So that that film takes three hours to show us, but. I'd be curious to see that compared with uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, as far as the 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 violence aspect, because it, it man who shot Liberty Valance to me is an interesting uh, John Ford western, and Ford and and Fuller seem like uh, they would be definitely coming from different camps, both auteurs, of course, but just uh, not of the same cloth. Yes, definitely. It'd be, I mean, it's it's the interesting thing about um, Sam Fuller because. The more you kind of see about him, the more you see and the more you read about him. I watched a few documentaries about him as well leading up to this. It's strange that he was kind of even part of the studio system because he sounds, he isn't the type of person who, who makes any compromises whatsoever. I mean, he one of the names that keeps cropping up in the biography is um, J. Edgar Hoover, who he seems to irritate on a daily basis and would have to go and see with um, various studio heads. Um Slightly unhinged as well. He used to carry a Luger around with him that he um, took from the war and would sometimes, even in one instance with Daryl Zanuck, um, fired it round a cinema to see if bullets really did make this ricochet noise that he'd shown in the film. So he sounds like a pretty funny guy. Um, well, slightly unhinged in a good way, but I would imagine a bit of a nightmare for studios if you've got someone who is that determined to get their vision on screen. But I suppose the thing about him was... He, he did make successful films. I mean, he, he worked in the system and I suppose towards the end of his career, I guess he wasn't kind of as prolific, but this is someone, he, he, he was definitely box office, wasn't he? I mean, he, these films were successful at the time. Well, yeah, and I, I think a lot of them ended up on the second half of a double bill, which is absolutely fine, but they, the, yeah, they, they um, 
weren't he he kept making movies you know it wasn't like he uh was being you know chided by the studio system being told to if he was told to, to tone it down he definitely didn't it wasn't until years later when he made white dog that he seemed to really kind of get into trouble and then after that it was he went over to france and worked there for the rest of his life I mean, moving on to pick up on South Street. This was um, your pick, obviously. In it. I know it's in the Master Cinema. It's obviously in the Criterion Collection as well. When did you first come across it? It was probably mid '90s. I was going through a real Richard Woodmark phase and uh, picked this one up at one of the local video stores. And I, yeah, I love film noir. I love Richard Woodmark, and this just really satisfied that. And just the the acting, the the uh, use of close ups. Mm-hmm. Um, just so many things about this movie really spoke to me when I saw it. And of course the plot, I I thought that was great. And just again, talking about violence, um, when violence erupts on the, uh, in this film, it, it, you can really tell that it does. It really strikes you. At first, I think I was kind of a little bit, I wasn't overwhelmed by it. I, I wasn't underwhelmed by it. It just seemed kind of a perfectly acceptable film noir and then the more I went back into it and the more I thought about the film the more I could see it was actually um, something of a kind of an oddity for the time it was made because it was released in 1953 and this is like the height of Cold War paranoia Um, there were several cases in America of people being arrested for espionage and what I found interesting about Pick Up on South Street is that Fuller takes something as massive as the Cold War and then distills that that kind of period in history and puts it in the hands of people who don't really have any interest in the Cold War at all. These characters, um, Skip, played by Richard Winmark, and um, Candy by Jean Peters, um, they're not really political people at all. All their their existence is simply about surviving and getting through the day, and kind of you know obviously. Uh, skips a pickpocket and he has no interest in the wider scale of things and I found that quite interesting about the film I definitely feel he could have used any real ruse in the film it could have been drugs it could have been guns or something like that but he treats he, he takes what is kind of a massive subject and the people it says a lot about the people in the film I think that he chooses to do, use this kind of through line of the spy ring and all that kind of stuff yeah you know Fuller he didn't necessarily, other than possibly Jesse James, he didn't necessarily look at characters that were larger than life. He seemed to go for the characters who were smaller than life and these kind of the people on the fringes. And this is definitely a story about people on the fringes. I mean, Skip McCoy, three-time loser, has been set up the river, uh, and now he's yeah just trying to survive everyday life. And to your point, yes, it could have been anything that he got out of Candy's purse, but it ends up being this microfilm. And he has no interest in that at all i mean when when people are are saying how important this is just his answer is are you trying to wave the flag at me you know just i have no patriotism in my bones at all and i like that towards the end of the film when he finally does right quote unquote by turning the microfilm over he's not it's candy taking it and taking it to the police 
he has no, he never comes around to the idea of he needs to do the right thing. She comes around to doing the right thing. She, who has been a dupe in this whole plan, had no idea what was in her purse when it came to this stuff. So, you know, she is the only one that really has this kind of patriotism. Her and a little bit of Mo, who I find to be the most interesting character in the film. Mo has a little bit of that as well, but for the most part, it's just... You know, who gives a shit what what's going on with this stuff? And it really is such a, a great MacGuffin because it really means nothing to so many of the characters in the film other than the commies and the FBI. Skip as a, as a kind of the hero of the film. And yeah, certainly I, and I say that virtually meaning he's the kind of the lead character, as it were. I found it so interesting. Like you say, there is no patriotism to him. He doesn't he literally does not give a toss. In any other film, Skip would come round to this idea and sort of become a patriot and try and do his bit for, for, for the country. And he doesn't. He has literally no interest whatsoever other than surviving to the next day and getting on. He's always looking to kind of make his money. And I love the fact that um, where Skip lives as well, I thought was very interesting, um, which is this kind of shack on the end, just basically by the river. Um and he, he keeps his beers in a kind of a, a float that he puts into the river to call them because he can't, accord, can't afford a fridge. And it's someone who is so proliferal to the world outside. And you definitely feel, I think, with the film that it's kind of going into the murky side of the world and this city. I'm assuming it's New York, isn't it? I think it's supposed to be set in there. It was all filmed on, on sets. But I love the fact that he does that and doesn't try and sensationalize what skip's doing it's almost like he's he, he downplays every aspect of his heroicness i find yeah and there's only a few moments where he does become a hero and one of those is when he decides that he's going to pay for Mo's funeral because the only thing in her life that really meant anything was that she didn't get buried in potter's field that's the you know the 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 where poor people would end up getting buried and he wants to make sure that that doesn't happen to her. You know, she's, she's not even alive anymore, but he honors this for her. And that's really the, one of the few moments of the film where you really feel like he's doing something heroic and he's doing it for somebody else like him who's on the fringes. So it's not, again, he's not doing anything for the government. He's not doing anything for the powers that be. He's doing something for somebody else of his same class. Definitely. And the, the relationship with Mo is quite interesting because she kind of sells him out. Mo is kind of like the go-to person for information and he doesn't kind of blame her, I don't think. He doesn't, I mean, like you say, he, in the end, he does make her kind of, her, her wish come true as it were, because that says so much about her character, that her one aspiration in life is how she spent, how she gets buried. And I mean, it, 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 I almost laughed when I was re-watching it yesterday at just kind of how bleak an outlook on that, on life that is. But it's interesting because I find with Mo, she she definitely is the heart of the film. Yeah, and you're right. He doesn't seem to mind because, as she even says at one point, they would have figured it out eventually anyway. He probably likes that I made a little bit of money off of it. You know, it's just like, okay, yeah, I can completely see that and I can agree. And the way that she is constantly trying to get money out of the police department, out of the FBI, and the same thing for Skip. He's always, he's looking out for himself all the time. So it doesn't become like, you know, uh, what can I do for my country? It's what can you do for my bank account? Well, not that he would ever have a bank account, but what can you do for my, my, my billfold? You know, and he is just constantly like, you know, oh, well, if you think that's, you know, 
<laughs> the one part where he, he yells at Candy, you know, tell your mom it's now twenty five thousand dollars. You know, yeah. he just don't, and he's just always looking for more money. And it, it's great that he's just he's looking out for himself. But yeah, I don't think that he really minds. I think that any way that Mo can get ahead, I think he would be okay with. The scene where he first meets Candy as well is quite brilliant because she walks in, he just straight punches her in the mouth, throws beer on her, and then they start kissing and embracing. And I just, I, I, Fuller said in an interview I was watching that he likes scenes that gave him a hard on. I, I think I know what he's trying to get at. And it's, it's one of those, he just kind of cuts straight to the point about what these two characters are. She, you know, she gets a punch in the mouth and beer poured on her, but that doesn't have her running for the exits. She just sort of thinks, oh, here's someone who I might be able to kind of play a little bit. And there's a sense that kind of they're just scoping each other out and working out what they're doing. And something you alluded to at the start was the use of close ups in this film and in Fuller's work in general. He's someone who uses the close up, I find, a lot. But to me, it never gets boring. No, no. And it, it, he kind of helps play the the grotesque that way there are a lot of times where he's too close mm. and you just you uh, are you know seeing these sweaty faces you know this is definitely dead of summer and they make a big deal about the cold beer and everything but yeah we've got these really close up and it it's nice that he's making you uncomfortable as you're watching this yeah, and this is this is the kind of what I, I kind of went to go in as well. The kind of the appeal of this film because it is about really the most pretty despicable people for the most part. I mean, even you don't you're not rooting for the the FBI to win, are you? You don't want them to. You don't really care whether or not they get the films back. You're just more interested in what goes on with Skip. And it, it's one of the things. Perhaps it, it is one of the areas with the film where I kind of I feel like I'm at a little bit of a distance to it because I don't necessarily. I'm not rooting for them. I like Mo. I love I love the character. And we talk about her kind of what happens to her in the end. But I I, I find perhaps and when, when you get these kind of these really unnerving close ups of people's faces and he didn't typically cast his male leads for their looks. He cast them because of their acting ability. And I mean, he, he even alludes to it that he, he when it was Windmark, he, he 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 cast him on the basis that he didn't look like a typical Hollywood hero. And he, when he's sticking the camera in the face like that, it is quite jarring. And I was watching it on the projector as well. So massive faces kind of staring back at you. But it, it's a very kind of Sam Fuller trait, as it were. It's not just a close-up. It, it's a feeling that comes off the screen. Like when Leone does one of his close-ups, I think it says that they're not just a close-up. It's a kind of, it's almost its own kind of cinematic language. Yeah, definitely. And when he's when he's up close on Joey, it's like a whole other feeling. Joey, the the communist agent, Richard Kiley. Yes. The the way that he shoots, and he seems to shoot a little bit off kilter when it comes to his face, and just again, very very sweaty, and just he is the one who's in the middle. He's the one who is potentially in the most trouble when it comes to this because he's a lower agent for these communists, and we have this kind of power dynamic at one point where we see who's the top guy and who's not, and and he's definitely like the lower lower uh, rung on the ladder when it comes to this. And Candy has 
in his mind screwed up and now he's you know under the chopping or on the chopping block and just the close-up that is on him and his very uh quick uh delivery of his lines and just that really uh um, tight shot of him he just is so unhinged and i think it's, it's almost like that old uh 60 minutes thing where they would take the person who was in the hot seat and just get really super close on them so that any movement of their face just made it look super dramatic like they were they were just thrashing more than anything even if it was just a tiny movement of their head and that's that really played out well for me when it came to how joey was always being shot yeah i I think there's no there's no hiding from the close-up and for an actor especially, I mean, you have to, I mean, I often hear one, one complaint and I sound very, very vague. It's like I know a lot of people who don't like the acting style of, of films from the 40s, 50s and up until kind of parts of the 60s. And they, they kind of feel that, you know, it's, there is, and there is a certain style to it. It has to, it has to be said. And I, I, they, they find it quite off-putting. And I, as I always try and kind of mind count, these were different times and they were trying to do different things. And when you see the camera that close to someone and they have... A kind of a real kind of startled look or fit. you see the fear and you see the anger and you see the passion in his characters which again is something when we talk about kind of putting the personality of directors in film it's a very Sam Fuller trait and I really I, I really do do like him one of the things I find really interesting about this film was the fact that when he went into it he he wanted to make a film about pickpockets and he wanted to make a film about these people's lives. And it, part of it comes to the fact that he did know this world. He had covered it from his time as a journalist and he went and kind of consulted with the police. Uh, and he went in there and it's, it's interesting that someone, I, I think, takes so much interest into this, this area of humanity, the kind of the, lo- the people who've got nothing, basically. And the way in which he... He films them. Don't get the impression he's kind of condemning their actions either, which I find quite interesting. Is that something that you could kind of pick up on? Yeah, no, it doesn't seem like he's he's holding judgment over any of these people, whether it's even when it comes to the patriotism, he seems to be like, okay, yeah, some people just aren't. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's something where he is, you know, sitting on high saying, oh my gosh, this is a terrible thing. To your point about the whole idea of the pickpockets, I mean, that is one of the more fascinating scenes for me is when Mo is talking with the police and asking all the questions as far as was he doing this? Was the pickpocket to the left or to the right? Yes. Was he a southpaw? Was he not? Was he holding a newspaper? Okay, was it the front page to the front or was it the classified? So just all of these little nuances and that each one of those was a tell for probably however many hundreds of pickpockets that no, Mo just has in her, you know, her inner Rolodex. Just it was amazing that that whole idea of narrowing it down one after another until she could, you know, provide a list of a few to. The, the police, you know, even like it's not even unique to Widmark. There's a few more people out there that have that same style. I was like, wow, okay. The, just imagine the amount of crime that is happening in the city for her to have all of those questions to narrow down a group of pickpockets to just a, a smaller list. I mean, the film opens with him robbing Candy's purse, and it was it was interesting because one of the, the documentaries I was watching about the film, um, he was talking about how he when he went and met pickpockets, how basically their their hands were obviously the most important tool to their livelihood. So they would take great care of them. They would trim their nails. They, would, they wouldn't they would do anything that would risk that. So, for example, apparently many of the pickpockets would know who the police were, who were specially, they used to have specially trained police, apparently, on the subways and in the streets looking out for them. So there'd be this kind of like Cold War scenario where pickpockets would go onto the train. And if they saw someone who they recognised or suspected was a police officer, they wouldn't actually 
do it or if they thought that taking the wallet was going to be too dangerous they wouldn't because if someone turned around and broke their arm for example that would be them out of work until they could until they could make a recovery and when you see him doing the, the, when he's robbing the purse it's you know, it's a it's a packed carriage he's got his newspaper up very very subtle you, you, you get the impression that he is an absolute master at doing this and what I kind of like about it is that the fact that he, he knows the police so well he obviously has been caught a few times and whatnot and they're fully aware of him but it's the fact that he just doesn't give a toss and just goes straight back out there and, and does what he did and makes his living basically but it's nuances like that I find which is the, the, the smaller details in films which help me buy into the reality of them and certainly I feel this is done I mean do you know anything about the casting as well no I can't say that I do yeah. I just know that that Widmark would go on to work with Fuller a few more times or at least one more and so the, they seem to work well together I mean Widmark was just, he was so diverse he just he played so many great roles back then yeah, I mean, he was uh, there was there was clashes on the set apparently between him and um, Fuller. They, they, there was a bit of antagonism there, and I think there was um, a scene that uh, he wanted to he wanted to shoot Widmark coming to the police station, have him zigzag amongst the desks, and Widmark refused to do it. Um, he didn't really understand why he was doing it, and I think someone pointed out to him that the reason he was doing it was to show how many times he'd been in. the in prison and he knew all these people and apparently Fuller kind of closed him down but um, no it's quite interesting because Greta Gable was originally down to play Candy she actually lobbied quite hard to get the role and she had a clause in her contract that there had to be a dancing scene in the film and apparently uh, Fuller was absolutely adamant that he didn't want her in it and this actually kind of came to a head because apparently she had it in her contract that if she was refused a part, the studio would have to pay her $300,000. So he had to go through the, the you know, hiring Gene Peters and then almost had to kind of end up with um, Greta Gable in the film. And she, I think Zanuck managed to have a word with her. But Marilyn Monroe actually as well was considered for the role of Candy. She was actually lobbying him quite hard to have it. But he decided that she was too beautiful basically to be in the film and... Uh, when Jean Peters asked why he cast her, it's because he told her that she, she had sexy legs, which I don't think in today's politically correct world you would probably get away with. No, there's some, yeah, I mean, some interest. I, I think this is the thing about the film is that it, I, I don't think people, I don't, other than the, um, Jean Peters, I don't think it's a film that has kind of movie star star type people. They're not beautiful people, are they, that you often get in a Hollywood film? No, I, I, I think Jean Peters is attractive, but I would not say call her beautiful. Yeah. Um, but then, at, uh, for the most part, she looks scared as she's supposed to. You know, she's she's very much under stress in this uh, film. There's not really a whole lot of times for her to look beautiful. I mean, another kind of like side note on that was that her boyfriend would drive her to the set every day and sit in his car and watch from the car, and was especially. Um, apparently quite intrigued in the rehearsal scenes between her and Ridmark and her boyfriend at the time was actually Howard Hughes who she would later go on to marry and apparently uh, yeah he would sit around in his car watching on and wouldn't ever leave the car or anything like that so I should imagine that was um, having the richest man in the world at the time brought with it another level of stress for everyone involved I would have spat him everything I've heard about Howard Hughes as well yeah I don't think he had issues, shall we say. So I think that kind of perhaps added a certain something to the, the set. But, I mean, this is a film noir. I mean, kind of when we talk kind of the genre that it plays in. And I, t I tend to find with film noirs as well that often I find the plots to be 
completely ludicrous um, a lot of the times. Or, I mean, even the, even the ones that I like, like the Maltese Falcon and, and, and whatnot and the Big Steve, I can't really tell you what those films are about other than the fact that I like watching them just for the kind of the pure kind of aesthetic pleasingness. But I found this film is quite accessible, actually. I don't think it's particularly confusing. I think it's, its simplicity is one of its strengths because I think you get to kind of spend so much time with the characters. Is that something you, you can see in it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's so much of it. It just revolves. You talked about um, uh, Skip's kind of shack at the edge of the, the river. There, you know, at Lands End, as it were, and um, or possibly it's even past Lands End because it seems to be like a little standing island to itself. But so much of this is about finding where Skip lives, and that just seems to me <laughs> like okay. So we have to let the police know where Skip lives. Okay, now Candy wants to know where Skip lives. Now Joey wants to know where Skip lives. And I know that at one point Skip seems to say you know, that, that there's nobody in the city who doesn't know where I live now. He's he's trying to be incognito, yeah. and all of these people know where he's at now. And I it it makes a lot of sense as far as the way that the film is structured when it comes to the importance of where he lives and trying to get things out of him as he's trying to get money out of other people. So I, I like that. And I like that there's this kind of uh, rhyme in the film when it comes to the pickpocketing, you know, that it sets off the whole thing at the beginning and then it saves his life at the end when he manages to pick Joey's pocket and take his gun away from him. So yeah, there's, it's a very simple, I don't want to say simple. No. It's a, it's an easy to follow yeah plot and and i appreciate that that it's very well structured and it, it really moves along i mean it, the, i watched it again twice yesterday and the second time it just flew by because it is so well paced and so well structured yeah definitely i think this is something i i found about because it's, it's quite a brisk film it's hour and hour and 20 minutes and when i say a simple story it's not convoluted is what i'm trying to say i think there's not much there's no fat on this film well, there's no Which flashbacks, is, there's no, no voiceovers, no. you know, some of those typical noir devices that they use are just, they're not here because they're not necessary. It's its not like we're starting at the police department at the end where we have, you know, Skip and, and Candy and they're just like, oh, I remember the time when we met and then we go back. No, <laughs> cut all that no. stuff out. No, it's brilliant. It just it just dives in on the story and it's refreshing. I and mean, we talked, we were talking before about Batman versus Superman. And I, I said, I, I generally couldn't follow that film. And it just seemed to be story on story on story on story. And I was like, what, what's going on here? Who, who are these people? But with Pick Up on South Street, going back into it. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched it twice over the case of this weekend. And it, it just goes, boom, here's your story and gets on with it. You don't, every scene is working to get the narrative going. There's nothing on there which seems kind of, yeah, like you say, characters wistfully looking out over the and thinking about their past lives and how they're going to sail off into the sunset together when they get all of this money. And it's refreshing, I find, um, to do that. I'm not sure how much the running time has to do when this how this film was marketed. And like I said, it might have been kind of tacked on as a double bill or something like that. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. I'm sure that this was probably the second half of a double feature. but And, and yeah, it just uh, plays itself rather well. And, and there's, I mean, because there are movies that are 70 minutes long that feel like they're an eternity. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I always say this. If you want to prolong your life, watch an Andre Tarkovsky yeah, film. Yeah, that's true. Because he can, I mean, I, they've been re-releasing his films on Blu-ray recently. And, I mean, Jesus Christ, Stalker. 
Oh God, I'm, uh, I'm going to be covering that on the on the projection booth next next year. So. Oh my God. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I always, and I love selling Stalker. I'm a quick tangent now, but I love selling Stalker because you can make it sound so interesting. There's this room in a forbidden zone that where all your desires will come true and these guys want to get there. And they've got to get through this kind of maze to get there. People go, wow, that sounds really interesting. I must watch it. And then I get texts like saying, I'm, a, I'm half an hour into this and all I'm seeing are puddles. And it's like, oh, no, I always go stick with it. It gets really good. And that, yeah, it just goes on and on and on. I don't even know what I think of that film, to be really honest with you. I know, and I know I've watched it a few times, and it, it's pretty interesting. But um, yeah, if you're going to do Tarkovsky, don't drink booze before you watch them. Uh, try it. Don't take your phone in the room. Just de, de get, get anything that can distract you out. And you might you might be okay with it, but um, yeah, no, I, it's pretty. Tough. I have this thing with Solaris where if I try to watch Solaris, I will fall asleep every single time. <laughs> I, I feel like a bad person when I do that in films as well. Like I consider myself to be, and I feel like I'm letting myself, like I'm some sort of faker when I fall asleep in films like that because I should be able to kind of stay awake and then kind of be all pleased with myself. That I've made it through in, but. Yeah, they're definitely, it's an ordeal. I don't know, not an ordeal. It's more of a, it's a test of one's, I think, cinematic credentials, if you can kind of make it all the way through without your mind wandering in some places. I kind of watched Pick Up on South Street three times yesterday because I also watched one called The Cape Town Affair. I don't know if you had... Not heard of it. Oh, wow. It is a remake of Pick Up on South Street. And even though it's credited to another writer besides Sam Fuller and the guy that wrote the original story, which just amazes me because it's there's no difference. The, whoever did the screenwriting on Cape Town Affair had the easiest job in the world. They didn't even change the dollar amounts. So when he's asking for 25000 it's still 25000 The only difference is that it's Rand instead of dollars so which kind of threw less, me off it's even less money. yeah so yeah that's, that's about 50 quid it, <laughs> it threw me off because there was one point where they were going out and and uh she's like oh you know give me 50 grand and i'm like 50 grand and then finally i'm like oh she said rand oh okay all right i was like boy this is a weird monetary system but um <laughs> yeah it's it's exactly the same and it is um it's interesting to see it's in color and it's James Brolin instead of Richard Woodmark. And James Brolin, though I like him a lot, he is no Richard Woodmark. He just, especially young James Brolin, where he just seems to be like, hi, I'm James Brolin. I'm good looking and cocky. And so there is no real gravitas to him whatsoever. So it just felt like this very sanitized version of Pickup on South Street. Like there were the, the close ups were much farther back. You know, there weren't the, the close ups that were going on. But I mean, beat for beat, the dialogue, everything was right there. I was just like, this is kind of an amazing remake. It was not quite as blatant as uh, Van Sant's Psycho, but it was right up there. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it now, it's credited. You know, Sanford has got screenplay credit on it, um, we've saying, which would make perfect sense. But I mean, um, yeah, that's that's amazing. It, and the, it seems to be absolutely savaged on almost every affair, on every sort of website I'm seeing of it. Um how bizarre it's very bizarre and it's got this jazz score that is just the it's it's almost more like sergio mendez type jazz it's just like 
yeah, it's 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 kind of strange. And then yeah, all set down in South Africa, uh, it, which is even stranger to me because when you look at Pick Up on South Street, I mentioned early on in the discussion the way that Fuller would cast minority characters and just not even blink an eye. And so there's you know the the uh, what was it the black guy at the library that um, uh, that Skip goes to so that he can look at the microfiche and then eventually the microfilm. There's the uh, the Chinese guy at the restaurant where the one guy uh, what was it Lucky Louie where he's at and uh, you know there's it's just Fuller would cast real people in these films and he, he never thought about it so you get to Cape Town Affair and it's just a lot of white people and I'm like oh yeah it's South Africa that makes sense during a part as well I'm just reading it so yeah like the so, so not only did they remake the film they made it in possibly the worst place on earth at the time in for term in terms of kind of like racial segregation yeah no I, I, I'm trying to work out the logic of, of, of the Cape Town affair and I'm failing to see anyone to be brutally honest with you but I mean perhaps I mean one of the reasons why I, I, th- I think that Pick Up on South Street is so lean is because obviously his background I mean he was a, he, he wrote novels before this he was a, a journalist and I think that kind of helps him in what knowing what a good makes a good story and I think it's 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 all there in this film. He's not trying to kind of he, he boiled it down to its constituent parts and just gives you enough to keep things going. And it, I, I think it, it's much you know, much to its credit for doing that. But I think we kind of the standout scene for me is Moe's death. And I was going to say spoiler alert, but I think we already spoiled it because we talk about the fact that he pays for a funeral. But to me, that that really is that the film's key moment. I find it says so much about the character of Mo because. She doesn't beg for her life, does she? She just accepts fully what's going to happen to her. And it's there's something even more tragic about that, I find. It seems like that day of the film, you know, the, the, the day in the movie, she is just completely run down. And there's a few moments where she'll like stop and just kind of go like a real like little pause. And so when she goes into her house or her hovel and there's the... Uh, uh, the feet on the bed next to her and you know the camera moves over to see Joey there it's just like wow that's really nice and she just yeah she doesn't care she's just done she's done with everything it's been a really hard day for her she knows she's near the end of her life and this might be it so she I won't say she begs for death but she pretty much says you'd be doing me a favor the fact that she's reached the point in the film and it's so telling about the character in this film like we said you know her her kind of i think i think she says doesn't she something like she, she's not going to get what she wanted or she's not going to get the funeral she, she alludes to the fact that she's not going to be able to kind of pay for this funeral spot that she did want um and you know luckily enough you know, skip wades in on that front but i found that to be quite affecting actually and it's a very macho film um i don't think this would be a particularly great date film if you were around in 1953 but i did find that was quite a uh a, a bit of a choky moment and the film kind of collo- uh, kind of ends as well with i think one of the best punch-ups i've seen in a film for, for a very long time and i just kind of want to go off on, on one here as well because i was saying this to someone the other day that when i, I when i in fact captain the civil war captain america film is a perfect example really because that film is a film in which everything involved in it feels like they're pulling punches they're, they're not really no one's really trying to hurt each other in that film it's all just show it's, it, it's so that when I mean I went with my girlfriend's children who loved it it's for the kids I mean a, a, an 11 year old and a 6 year old that's the best thing they've ever seen when you're an adult you just sat there going you guys aren't trying to do anything you, this is just 
this is just for the sake of a set piece and we know that no one's really going to get hurt. In this, when when the fighting starts, I was I went back and I was watching the film scene by like you know, frame by frame, and I still can't see where they're pulling punches. It looks like they're absolutely battering each other. Yeah, that that scene at the end in the bathroom, and then when it explodes out into the the subway, the moment when he pulls him down the stairs and his face hits every single stair. That was the moment where I was just like the very first time I watched this, I was like, Oh my God, you know, just the movie had me by its, its claws so much already. And when that happened, I was like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. This is just the most brutal scene I've seen in a long time. And, and it's, it's wonderful at just the amount of brutality that is in there. And that, that just, it's such a, 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 a fight to the finish. I love it. Yeah. And the thing that got me about it as well is that when he's punching, when there's a sequence kind of like punching him just before he falls onto the tracks and he's only punching him with one fist. And I know this sounds a bit of a strange thing to pick up on, but what I kind of took out of that was, is that you get the impression that's his best punching hand. And he's just going to smack him, just clobber him as many times as he can with the one hand. And I kind of dig that about it because it wasn't this kind of, it didn't like it was massively choreographed. It's almost like Sam Fuller just said to them, beat the shit out of each other. Do it how you guys want to do it. And you see these guys getting punched. And I mean, they're not, they're, they're getting hit over and they look like they're really hurt. You don't need guns. You don't need big battles. All you need is two guys kicking the crap out of each other. And it was worth a thousand uh, Marvel Civil Wars. Uh, brilliant stuff. Well, and it was just such a, a great um, catharsis at the end of all of this because, I mean, you really feel like this is for Candy. This is for Mo. Yeah. You know, the, and, and this is for my own life, too. You know, he, yeah. he's really fighting for everything at the end there, but really feels like and, – and it's not for Queen and Country. It's it's for him. It's for his personal stuff, It's and it makes it – all the more personal that he isn't this hero who's fighting to, you know, for truth, justice in the American way. He's just fighting for his life and, and to redeem the, the deaths and, and the beating of these other characters. I love how he strolls into the police um, room after this fight. And there is not, a, there's not a mark on him. He's His hands are completely fine. He's, I mean, I, I, don't, I banged my leg getting in bed the other day and I had the biggest bruise you've ever seen in your and that was like that wasn't even anything near as, as ferocious of what he's been through and he's taken a few good slogs to the chops as well but no, he just strolls in in his pristine suit and that is the, this is my only I suppose bugbear about the film it's poverty but it's really clean poverty I mean he's always he's, he's immaculate even his shack <laughs> exactly it's not the worst place is it i mean it's not it's not the third world and he he does always manage to have kind of quite a crisp suit on which i'm I, i've kind of sold it to myself that he's kind of managed to kind of he manages to dress well by his ill-gotten gains but i, I did laugh when he walked in there was absolutely not a scratch on him whatsoever but I mean, this is films. I mean, it's, it's going to happen. You can't be too picky. But. Well, I think at that point, because Candy's all set up as well, and we the last time we saw her, she was just really uh, had been beaten as well. So I think that some time has passed. I'm just not exactly how much. But yeah, to your point, I can I see where you're coming from. And yeah, when it comes to his suit, I was noticing that early on in the film, and I was just like, man, this was the era when guys would wear suits, and everybody looked so good, and Woodmark looked so good in this movie, and um, 
along those lines, I'm like, well, yeah, I guess it would make sense. He has to have at least one good suit for when he does his pickpocketing, because if a shabby guy comes up to you, you're going to be wary. But if a guy in a, a nice suit comes up to you, you're not, your, your guard's going to be down and he's going to be able to do his business that way. Yeah, it's part of his cell, isn't it? I mean, he has to, he has to, it's kind of part of his trade, as it were, that he has to kind of fit. And as well, it's conformity. I mean, he has to look like the people around him in order to kind of work his magic as well. But I would say as well, the fact that this film, with the very mind, it was all filmed on the back lot in um, Los Angeles. Um, I think the art direction on it's really good as well. I, I, I think it sells the fact that it's in New York. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I'm always slightly aware of the fact that it's obviously being shot on a soundstage, but it didn't distract me like some films do. I watched Robin Hood, um, The Adventures of Robin Hood again, and you can tell that film's been shot in Los Angeles, and it's so not in the in the in the in the uh, forests of Nottingham, and I, it, it was ever so slightly distracting. But I feel with this, I think they do manage to sell it quite well as a, for a studio film, as it were. Well, how does uh, Kevin Costner's accent? How does that sit with you? I don't mind that. Yeah, that's part of the gene. That's part of the. I'm sorry. I'm talking about the original. The oh, okay. In fairness, I I will give I will give Costner his dues. I did think I don't I do think they filmed it here, but I would point out one thing is that on one minute he's on the White Cliffs of Dover in southern England, then he's on Hadrian's Wall, which is in northern England, and I, I don't know why he's walked past Nottingham to go to Hadrian's Wall, decided it's crap, and then walked back to Nottingham, and that journey would take weeks, but. Things like that, I you know, picky, but no, it was the, it was the old film version I was watching. I think you can actually see the he, the hills of Hollywood in the background, and I was thinking, yeah, sorry guys, you're not sending it to me. But with this, I think, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, the, the art direction is good enough to sell it, I guess. Yeah, no, it it, it definitely, even though it was a, a soundstage, it, it did feel crummy a lot of times. Yes, no, totally. And from what I understand as well, I mean, they kind of built quite a lot of. Um, uh, functioning uh, track for, for the for the tram and you know the the and he actually went down and um, got the art director to go and take pictures of the inside of the stations and things like that to make them you know absolutely bang on and uh, yeah I mean it's it, it, it works for me but I mean is there anything kind of else you could kind of think about kind of pick up on South Street that we kind of haven't covered? Well, I like the relationship between he, well everybody and the police when it comes to this. Everybody has their own relationship with them. You know, Candy doesn't uh, at one point when she's trying to lie to him that uh, the microfilm was actually pictures of her brother. Um, and he's like, well, why didn't you go to the police for that? And she's just like, well, I've had some dealings with them before. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is it implying that she used to be a prostitute? Is that I'm what? not sure if it is or not. Um, it, it might. Uh, it, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, but then later on when she goes to the police, you know, she it's very straightforward with them and everything. So it, it, it just the her relationship. I love Mo and, and I especially love Mo's whole use of the ties as that that's kind of legitimizing her business. <laughs> and, and that the, the tie shows up when Widmark, after he knocks out candy that he's looking through her purse and finds one of Mo's ties. So it just immediately he was like, Oh, okay, this is how she came to me was through Mo. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know later on when Mo again is trying to sell some more ties and everything, it's like okay, this this is really nice. But yeah, her Mo's relationship with this Captain Tiger, and I love that his name is Captain Tiger. <laughs> it's pretty great. And that line later on, like, "What you been feeding the tiger?" It's like, yeah, I, I I really want that story to be that he knew someone of that. I I can imagine from what I I've, I've read and kind of heard about Sam Fuller, I bet out there that he he came across someone called that and heard that line used on them. 
it, it, it would seem quite in keeping with, with with what he does with his films. But yeah, it, I, I do love the kind of the interplay that everyone has and the fact that it's very kind of simple things that give away who's behind everything. But um, it's an interesting one because the film was, when it was released, um, it was kind of divided critics already. And I think um, lots of it comes to do with the fact that some people felt it was um, un-American. Um, J. Edgar Hoover apparently was absolutely furious with the film. Um, and demanded that they uh, they change it in France. They actually changed the kind of the MacGuffin story to the they they made it into drugs. I think it was because they they objected to the kind of the the communist overtones in it. But um, it, it seems to have been one that kind of it was a, it did quite well at the box office. It kind of found its audience in time, as it were. But um, it, it's I, I mean. Over time, I think its reputation has got a lot better. I mean, I've heard Martin Scorsese talk about this film a lot. I mean, it does seem to be one which I think kind of people seem to really enjoy. I mean, what, what's your kind of thoughts overall? Yeah, I'm just so glad that, you know, that this is available via Criterion and just that there are so many of his films that are available through Criterion. I mean, when I was first trying to find Sam Fuller films, it was very difficult. I mean, it was, you know, uh, looking for something like Verboten or uh, even The Crimson Kimono or uh, China Gate. I mean, they were impossible to find. It was just, you know, and and still, you know, at least we have Run of the Arrow available on the Warner disc, but, you know, that doesn't help you any when it's costing you 80 pounds over there. Or they want to charge that much for it. But, you know, I think as time goes on, um, people are realizing just what an important filmmaker he was and that it, it, he was he made a difference when it came to films and I'm glad that there's a reappraisal. I'm glad that there was a new uh, version of the big red one, which kind of put things back in the order that he wanted things. So I'm glad that there is this, uh, this appreciation for him now. I know that it's, it's been around for a long time. He was one of the kind of heroes to the, the Cahiers de Cinema and, you know, you'd see him show up in, in other filmmakers movies like, uh, you know, like, like Vim Vendors. And I can't remember if he was in a, was he in a, a Godard, or am I just am I mixing him up with Fritz Lang? Um, there was definitely a relationship with Fritz Lang. I can't remember. I'm not sure about Godard, but I definitely there was definitely something. I know he. I, I think he. I need to read this bloody biography. Actually, it's absolutely from what I've read so far. It's so interesting, and the way he write. I mean, the way he's written it is really good as well. But I need to. I, I did notice there was some pictures of him and um, Fritz Lang in there, so I need to kind of delve into that a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, he was he was a director who. Um, he did, I, I would like to see more of his, his work available and you know obviously thank god for criterion because that was how it came about but there does appear to have been a box set released in britain a while about that had a load of his films on it um like head and high water and things like that but it's out of print now and it's it, the the cost of it is absolutely enormous so i you know sadly i mean i've got um, master cinema i've just put out um uh, fixed bayonets as well on Blu-ray, which I haven't got around to watching yet, but I'm I'm definitely going to kind of do that. But yeah, he's a director who I, who I think um, he's he's one for me where having kind of gone back and watched a few films, I certainly want to revisit them a lot more. I think um, and like I said we're crying out for uh, some of these for, for more of these to be released. But yeah, certainly a very interesting um, person. I mean, is there anything else that we? Could well, I was going to say if you on? pick up on South Street. Um, I was going to say, if you haven't seen The Crimson Kimono, you definitely owe it to yourself to check that one out. Have you had a chance to check I, 
I haven't. No, let me just have a look. See how available that one. It's it's terrific. It is again. Uh, this one's set in Los Angeles, and it is set amongst the um, uh, the the Japanese community. And it's very interesting. Our, our main character is kind of half Japanese, half white, and the way that he can't really figure out which world that he belongs to. Very very strong performances, and you know it's it's interesting that um, our one of our female characters in this one is called Mo and in the Crimson Kimono I think there are two women and they both have uh, male names and at the by the end of the film you're thinking okay well it makes sense if the two women were together and the two men were together because there's this kind of husband and wife relationship or or um, marital relationship happening between the two detectives um, so it, it presents a lot of interesting themes to it oh right definitely well, I'm just having a look now to see if it's um available in in the uk and um it looks like it is but you have to pay an absolute fortune for it again so what is going on with sam fuller films someone needs to get on get us at 49 pounds that's not right yeah there needs to be yet another sam fuller resurgence so people can actually afford to yeah and and annoyingly i found i have found this to be a case with a lot of his stuff they are quite hard to pick up which i find slightly surprising as well actually i would have thought that um he would have that, that they would. I thought there would be a genuine demand for them, but I mean, the one I was trying to find was Helen High Water, which was I think it was his first CinemaScope film that he made, and um, yeah, for, for Fox, and it sounded really interesting, and um, yeah, that's another one. Just cannot get hold of it anywhere. Um, I think the yeah, I, I can buy it here on a Sam Fuller box. It's like twenty two pounds for a DVD. I mean, I'm not paying twenty two pounds for a DVD. I'm sorry, folks. That's just. Way, way, and Hollywood, and Hollywood way, wonders way. why we torrent. Well, this is it. I mean, yeah, I can see now. If I were to go on a naughty site, I can see that you can download it on there. So, I mean, that's yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I, I don't get this kind of withholding films like that and not putting them out because people are going to want to watch them. If you even just put them on a stream, I don't. I just don't get this reluctance a lot of the time to kind of hold on to these films. It's just bizarre to me. Yeah, it'd be it'd be a much better world if anything by Sam Fuller were available on demand right now. No, definitely. I mean, I would leave. I mean, the film it did. It bizarrely enough, I found out it did very well at the um, Venice Film Festival. It actually won top award there, and it was quite interesting to me because um, Fuller actually said when he was talking about filming. Um, become South Street that he was he was quite um envious of the kind of the Italian neo-realist movement who he held in very high regard and he 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 was envious of the fact that they would be able to get out onto the streets and and film their films and he was going to be stuck up on a sound stage and apparently he was delighted when he found out that um um, Visconti uh, sorry Luciano Visconti was on the panel the awarded um, pick up on South Street the award and what he actually heard was in later life was that um, Visconti had actually massively didn't like the film at all um, because of his because of his uh, communist convictions and had lobbied quite hard um, for it not to win. However, um, he actually writes here that Visconti was overruled by other jury members who just thought pick up was just a damn good movie and I think I would have to agree with that sentiment. I don't think it's a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it is just a damn good movie. I think it's a good way of spending an hour and 20 minutes of your life. And I mean, if you have an interest in film noir and in general, I think, go, go and check it out. But it's a good place to start if you're looking at getting into the films of Samuel Fuller. So I think that's going to be it for this episode. Is there anything else you'd like? No, to- I think I'm good. Brilliant. Is, um, okay, so where can we find more? You can of find me online? over at projectionboothpodcast.com. 
brilliant stuff. Um, do you about Twitter? Yeah, it's just it's 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 uh, difficult. It's pro booth cast. Right, okie jokey. And I would recommend to listen as well to subscribe to the Projection Booth because it's certainly one that I have on my rotation. Um, what episodes have you got? Well, um, September is going to be kind of a rough month here. We've got uh, Straw Dogs, mm-hmm. The Mafu Cage, mm-hmm. and Sunny Boy. But luckily, we're going to be wrapping things up with uh, Duck Soup. So oh, it'll be stuff. a much needed, much needed oh, break stuff. after that. Um, okay, so that's that. Then um, you can find us at mocast.blogspot.com. You can find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can find me on Twitter at 24framescast. Mike, many thanks for coming on board with us today. Um, good luck with all the podcasting. I hope Great. To Thank you, you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it.